Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick and I'm delighted to welcome you back once more to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. Today we're very fortunate to be joined by Francesca Langer, a historian and doctoral candidate at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. More generally, Francesca's work focuses on the politics and aesthetics of Creole patriotism in early Anglo-America and Latin America, and for this talk, she's drawing our attention down one layer further into something she calls the vivid neoclassical imagination, that's in quotation marks, vivid neoclassical imagination that U.S. patriots shared with their revolutionary peers in Latin America and vice versa. The talk is called Creole Classicism, and I'm hoping you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did. Here it is. Fresh from witnessing Napoleon's coronation in Paris, the young Simon Bolivar and his mentor Simon Rodriguez wandered between Europe's glittering capitals in a state of restless disillusionment. When they reached Rome, it is said that Bolivar fell to his knees upon the sacred mount, where the ancient plebeians first rose against their patrician rulers and vowed that he would not rest until he had liberated South America from Spain. If the crown Napoleon donned in 1804, in Bolivar's words, a miserable Gothic thing, signaled the death of the revolutionary dream in Europe, then it was all the more glorious and necessary to pursue that dream in America. Surrounded by majestic Roman ruins, the future Libertador declared that the old world had given examples for everything, the harshness of antiquity, the austerity of republics, the depravity of emperors, great historians, distinguished scientists, illustrious warriors, celebrated virtues, and vulgar crimes. Everything, he concluded, but the cause of humanity, the great problem of human freedom with which European civilization had struggled for millennia, was a mystery to be solved only in the new world. This pronouncement, known as the Oath at Rome, would become one of several key episodes in the semi-legendary biography which Bolivar's contemporaries had already begun to compile during his lifetime. The scene, as related by Rodriguez to biographer Manuel Uribe Angel, retroactively cast the 22-year-old dandy on his grand tour of Europe as an Aeneas-like figure of historical necessity, already burdened by the knowledge of his future greatness. Indeed, the oath reads like a soliloquy by Virgil's Trojan hero, using the genre conventions of classical epic to formulate a pan-Americanist utopianism that was itself thoroughly modern. For the first of many times, Bolivar invoked the ancient notion of translatio studii et imperii, Latin for the transfer of knowledge and power, which was the central theme of Virgil's Aeneid. Just as the mantle of destiny had followed Aeneas from Asia Minor in the east to Italy in the west, it would now pass from the old world to the new world. Throughout his career, Bolivar remained preoccupied with matters of political style. While he lamented Napoleon's betrayal of the French Revolution, he admitted in the same breath to admiring Napoleon's singular panache. In an effort to strike a tone that was both properly Republican and suitably grandiose, he repeatedly returned to the image of America as a modern-day Rome. Outlining his vision in his address to the Congress of Angostura in 1819, he observed that, since America detached itself from the Spanish crown, it has found itself like the Roman Empire when that great mass fell, because of the diversity of its population and the dissension within its political classes. 
to avoid the fate of the Roman Empire, and American Rome would have to overcome the divisions of colonial society and coalesce around a new American identity. We do not conserve the vestiges of another time, he said. We are not Europeans, and we are not Indians, but a middle kind between the natives and the Spaniards. This peculiar combination of traditionalism and futurism, republicanism and imperialism, Europeanness and indigeneity, epitomized the dominant political aesthetic of the American independence movements, which borrowed promiscuously from classical antiquity, while also conceiving of themselves as historically unique and modern. The rejection of monarchy and the separation from Europe created a vacuum of symbolic authority which patriot leaders in both Anglo and Latin America scrambled to fill. Neoclassicism, the stern and rational style of the French Revolution against the pastel frivolity of the Ancien Regime, was the obvious choice. But the return of Republican antiquity meant one thing in dense ancient Paris and quite another throughout the vast rural territories of early America. What has sometimes been described as an early form of anti-colonialist indigenismo among the Creole elite during the independence period is better understood as a form of neoclassicism, which linked Latin American revolutionaries intellectually with their Anglo-American peers. In America, the politicized neoclassicism of the Age of Revolutions took the form of a unique Creole classicism, which combined Greco-Roman iconography with a classicized vision of pre-Columbian indigenous antiquity. This novel patriotic aesthetic allowed the Creole political class to cast themselves as the protagonists of history, the inheritors of both the old and new worlds. The Creole elite throughout both Anglo and Latin America shared a common worldview which justified both their struggle for independence from Europe and their right as a class to govern America. It was their shared position as Creoles, caught between the European elite above them and the diverse American majority below, that drove both Anglo and Latin American revolutionaries to make similar arguments for independence, to undertake similar nation-building efforts, and to express similar aspirations for the future of the hemisphere. The reorganization of both the British and Spanish empires in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War resulted in new imperial impositions on the colonial elite, which fostered resentment and contributed to the emergence of a distinct Creole identity. During this period, neoclassicism became the preferred aesthetic of both Georgian and Bourbon elites, as European empires vied for the title of the New Rome. The self-conscious imitation of antiquity became an internationally recognized mark of modernity, and what distinguished neoclassicism from other dominant aesthetic genres of the 18th century Atlantic world was its explicitly political character. The Rome of the early modern imagination, of Machiavelli's discourses on Livy and Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, was the theater of elite power struggles and popular unrest that provided the foundation for the taxonomy of politics itself. The Jacobins had embraced neoclassicism not because of any necessary connection with revolutionary politics, but because it was the one pervasive elite aesthetic that readily lent itself to a revolutionary interpretation. The striking neoclassical canvases of painter Jacques-Louis David, for example, were originally commissioned by members of the French nobility. Only retroactively, once David himself had thrown in with the Jacobins, did he accept the title of the painter of Brutus and the Horatii, the French patriot whose genius anticipated the revolution. 
When the revolutionaries searched the European past for non-monarchical models of civic life, the ancient Greek city-states, and to an even greater extent, the Roman Republic, seemed like the only political legacy worth hearkening back to. The rejection of a familiar vocabulary of symbols associated with the Ancien Regime produced what historian Lynn Hunt has called a crisis of representation within France's revolutionary political culture. The word representation refers here to both political representation within the republic and symbolic representation within the official public sphere. In her analysis of the seal of the French Republic, which featured a nude Hercules wielding a club, Hunt illustrates the circularity of this process. Revolutionary leaders sought to educate the people to become what they supposedly already were by creating idealized depictions of what they were supposed to be. In his rugged strength and nude simplicity, this Hercules was an image representation of the people provided by the people's representatives. The embrace of neoclassicism as a revolutionary aesthetic had its political advantages, but sat uncomfortably beside the revolutionaries' avowed iconoclasm. After all, why should a truly rational Republican society have any need for nostalgic pseudo-Roman spectacle? Was it not the duty of revolutionary leaders to properly educate the people in Republican political theory, rather than seeking to dazzle them with banners and parades? Some called for the abandonment of such manipulation tactics altogether. As one anonymous contributor to the Annales Patriotique argued, the strict empiricist principles of Locke and Condillac demanded that the people should be accustomed to see in the statue only stone and in an image only canvas and colors. But this kind of purism was never a majority view, even amongst the most radical Jacobins. Rather, a tension between the principles of Republican austerity and the demands of popular mobilization conditioned revolutionary leaders' aesthetic choices. While the legislature of the French Republic generally agreed upon the necessity of abolishing the ridiculous hieroglyphs of the monarchy and aristocracy, they were also convinced of the need to create new symbols capable of grabbing hold of the senses in order to promote the proper mode of civic Republican consciousness. The Republic needed signs and seals, songs and slogans, statues and canvases, in order to be made real and present in the minds of the people. The question became what kinds of symbols reproduced the irrationalism and decadence of the monarchy, and what kinds were truly republican. The American independence movements faced a related but somewhat different set of aesthetic questions. American patriot leaders seldom expressed the level of hostility the most strident Jacobins evinced towards adopting the trappings of monarchy to suit more republican purposes. Their statues and canvases were to be enchanted with the spirit of the patria in all its more and less republican forms. In a strategy which historians have called wearing the mask of Fernando, Spanish-American patriot leaders used the plight of the deposed king Fernando VII to mobilize a largely royalist population against the usurper Napoleon. Patriot leaders in the British colonies initially followed a similar pattern, denouncing the actions of traitors in Parliament while maintaining their fealty to King George III. In both British and Spanish-American cases, patriotism, rather than strict anti-monarchism, was the strongest symbolic element. The aesthetic task of the Creole revolutionaries was to represent Americanness itself as an ethos, somewhat abstracted from either a British or Spanish ethnos. European artists had long personified America as a passive Indian maiden. 
Patriot artists classicized and therefore politicized her, arming her with a gladiatorial sword and topping her indigenous dress with a Roman liberty cap. These hybrid representations presented America as a universalizing figure, a synthesis of the old and new worlds. By augmenting the traditional pantheon of Catos and Ciceros with classicized versions of indigenous American figures, such as the Mapuche warrior Lautaro and the Inca emperor Atahualpa, Creole patriots attempted to give the new world its own classical past. By infusing the neoclassicism of insurgent republicanism with particularly American symbols, Creole classicism conveyed the idea that the spirit of liberty, born in the ancient Mediterranean, had found its true home in America. Instead of distinguishing Latin Americans from their Anglo-American peers, the hybrid aesthetic was often used to express Pan-Americanist solidarity. The New York Columbian, for example, printed editorials in support of the South American cause, which posited Atahualpa as a shared symbol of independence. When the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Peru, the paper claimed, their old-world religious intolerance led them to persecute the Inca for the crime of worshipping the sun. But a defiant Atahualpa would not convert to Christianity, even under pain of death. Before he was to be sacrificed, wrote the editors, the insulted prince firmly replied, You worship a god who died on a gibbet. We worship the sun who never dies. Interestingly, it was Atahualpa's very paganness, his refusal to accept Christianity as a European import, which marked him as a patriot, a kind of homegrown American Cato. Like the Roman Cato, his pagan virtue was to be admired as a secular political virtue. Creole classicism was first and foremost a lingua franca of the Creole political class. Glorification of the indigenous past did not imply political representation for contemporary indigenous people, as the Creole political class posited themselves as the inheritors of ancient glories. This shared sense of heroic destiny was able to transcend linguistic and religious differences between Anglo and Latin American elites. When, for instance, Francisco de Miranda wrote then-President Thomas Jefferson in search of support for a failed 1806 expedition to liberate Venezuela, he established their common ground as Creoles by quoting this passage from Virgil's Aeneid. That last great age foretold by sacred rhymes renews its finished course. Saturnian times roll round again, and mighty years begin. From this first orb in radiant circles ran. Playing on the theme of translatio studii et imperii, Miranda chose this passage in reference to the return of the age of Saturn in the New World. American independence, he told Jefferson, marked the arrival of that age, the return of which the Roman bard invoked in favor of the human race. The classical idiom provided a highly aestheticized and emotive medium for patriotic expression, grounded in a kind of universal heroic past to which both Anglo and Latin Americans could just as plausibly lay claim. Though the United States would not officially intervene on Miranda's behalf, he did manage to secure, with a Jeffersonian wink and nudge, some number of American ships and guns and at least 200 American recruits. According to one of them, a New Yorker named James Biggs, Miranda's Anglo-American followers were convinced of the glory and advantages of the enterprise, in part by the general's eloquent appeals to classical antiquity. He took excursions to Troy, Babylon, Jerusalem, Rome, Athens, and Syracuse, Biggs recalled. 
Men famed as statesmen, heroes, patriots, conquerors, and tyrants, priests and scholars he produced and weighed their merits and defects. For Miranda's recruits, a number of whom had just left college, the didactic use of classical literature would have been intimately familiar, creating a cultural bridge between the New Yorkers and their Venezuelan comrades. Creole classicism framed early America's college-educated professional class as a virtuous political class, and the struggle for independence as an opportunity for them to undertake the kinds of heroic deeds they had only read about in books. At the same time, revolutionary leaders were conscious of the need to get their message to the masses. Like Hunt's Jacobins, they strove to represent, and in so doing almost to create, a certain kind of American public. The American independence movements, which made unprecedented use of the newspaper as a tool of popular mobilization, promoted a form of stylized pseudo-Roman heroism to large and diverse audiences. If only the ancient Romans had had newspapers, lamented the Creole patriot editors from Philadelphia to Lima, the Republic might never have fallen. In both British and Spanish America, the newspaper assumed its modern form as a catalog of secular political events at a forum of public opinion amidst a late colonial milieu brimming with new modes of public architecture, theater, festival, parade, and protest. For most of the 18th century, the Anglo-American newspaper man was a skilled tradesman who made his living largely as a printer of sermons, almanacs, and official proclamations, while his Spanish-American equivalent was a clergyman who took up printing as a service to the colonial bureaucracy. The independence movements gave rise to the newspaper man as an activist, a partisan, a promoter of national consciousness. The newspaper genre itself, with its Latin mottos, pseudo-Roman decorative mastheads, and presumptuous self-appellations of tribune, developed in lively conversation with the classical canon the image of the Roman Forum in which heroic senators and advocates and tribunes of the plebs held forth, alerting the citizenry of their duties and interests, provided a compelling moral framework for understanding the disruptive technology of the newspaper and the new forms of political activity which it made possible. The Patriot Press created a feedback loop between itself and the oral, visual, theatrical, and ritual landscape of the independence movements. Upon the liberation of Caracas, for example, Bolivar threw himself a Roman triumph, riding into the city on a chariot and bowing his head to be crowned with laurels by a group of young girls dressed in white. This ritual performance before a live audience of thousands was then reported in newspapers across Spanish America. Since the majority of the population was illiterate, independence activists worked to disseminate these newspapers as widely as possible through oral readings. Like the oath at Rome, the triumph at Caracas would become a part of Bolivar's far-reaching media image, reproduced and reenacted visually, orally, and textually across vast distances. Ordinary people were not just spectators, but also aesthetic and intellectual contributors within the mass-participatory, multimedia landscape of independence. The crown of laurel, a Greco-Roman symbol of victory that was awarded to both Olympian athletes and triumphant generals in ancient times is an illustrative example. The symbol appeared on newspaper mastheads and in official signs and seals. It was a visual motif of patriotic monuments and festivals. But the revolutionary junta governments also awarded actual laurel crowns to soldiers, militiamen, and even heroic civilians for their services to the revolutionary cause. 
The crown of Laurel was a multimedia aesthetic object, a cliché of elite neoclassical symbolism that took on new meanings within the political arena of independence. The Creole political class gave itself the moral authority to award these laurels, to decide who was a citizen hero worthy of recognition. But when the families and communities of formerly enslaved veterans of the May Revolution of 1810 in Buenos Aires placed crowns of laurel on their graves, they claimed this moral authority for themselves. When Gabriel Prozer, the leader of an 1800 slave rebellion in Richmond, Virginia, carried a banner bearing a line from Joseph Addison's Cato, a tragedy, he also claimed the grandeur of the classical aesthetic for his cause. Creole classicism can be seen as an early example of what philosopher Crispin Sartwell has termed political aesthetics. The multimedia aesthetic environments in which modern states, parties, and mass movements seek to immerse their constituents and within which political thought and action are expressed. As a political aesthetic, Creole classicism answered several contradictory requirements. It allowed the independence movements to distinguish themselves as proudly and particularly American, while still hewing to European standards of respectability and good taste. It helped make sense of the emerging technological and social phenomenon of mass media by bringing it into continuity with the ancient Roman forum. And in an age preoccupied with questions of representation, it provided a heroic, utopian, and ambiguously inclusive vision of American identity that could appeal to large numbers of ordinary people without getting mired in the details of who was actually eligible to exercise Republican citizenship. The return of antiquity in a hybrid new world, the notion that, in the words of Argentine revolutionary Bernardo Monteagudo, the descendants of the wise lawgivers of Peru would now bring back the beautiful ages of Athens and Rome, provided a powerful aesthetic framework for navigating the chaos and uncertainty of the independence period. And that's a wrap. Thank you once more to our guests for another brilliant presentation and for sharing some of their work with us. Thanks to you for listening. Come again next time, and we will catch you then.